Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, the book of Romans, chapters 6 and 7. We are going to spend considerable time today defining terms and words that have become common in our Christianese vocabularies. But we don't either don't actually have a definite understanding of those words and terms in our minds, or we take them differently than how they were actually meant. So before we conclude Romans 6 and get started on chapter 7, I want to begin by taking another shot at explaining why Paul must be understood so very unlike he traditionally has been and why this is no easy task. Why do I harp on this so much? Because like it or not, what Paul says in the New Testament forms the core of most Christian doctrine. Whether it should or not, that's another matter. Now Bible translators are forever in a bind. They are all well aware that at times what they are attempting to translate from the biblical Hebrew or the Greek to English is probably a Jewish idiom or an expression that is from an ancient era 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. Even if it is fairly clear to them that the phrase under translation seems to be an idiom or an expression, they don't necessarily know for certain what it meant to the writer or to the people of his day. And if the meaning of that expression isn't entirely clear to them, then the dilemma is this. Do they go ahead and transliterate the Hebrew or Greek word for word, resulting in a passage that is likely to mean something to a 21st century English speaker that it could not have meant to the writer? Or do they just translate it dynamically? A dynamic translation means to interpret and write down not what the words literally say, rather what those words mean to communicate, at least in the opinion of the translator. Now let me give you some well-known English examples of idioms and expressions from American culture to help illustrate my point about dynamic translation. Don't cry over spilled milk. Now think about what these words are actually saying, but what they mean to you. Don't cry over spilled milk. Don't let the cat out of the bag. Let the chips fall where they may. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Every cloud has a silver lining. Kill two birds with one stone. See, I could go on and on and on 
with these idioms and expressions that are simply part of our everyday conversation. Idioms and expressions are designed to be memorable and to communicate something that is uniquely connected to one's particular culture. They work. And it is infrequent that if I should use these idioms while conversing with another American, that the other person would not instantly understand my meaning. In fact, in but a few words, these idioms sometimes convey something very specific that it might otherwise take a paragraph or two to define. But something very different happens when an American talks to a non-American using the same idioms. In fact, it usually doesn't even help if the American can speak the foreign language of his or her conversation partner because if those American idioms and expressions are translated to the foreign language word for word disregarding the culture the foreign person still doesn't get it or worse he accepts what is said as meaning exactly what it sounds like to them I remember some years ago in Brazil talking to a business associate and telling him a deal's a deal. And he looked at me with this odd expression and he said, well of course it is. And a cat is a cat and a car is a car. I mean he kind of wondered if I thought he was stupid or because I said something that is so blatantly obvious to any thinking person that perhaps he was being insulted. It actually took about a five minute conversation for me to explain and nuance this American expression, a deal is a deal in Brazilian cultural terms that finally made sense to him. See, this is what we're dealing with when we are interpreting Paul. And at times when interpreting other writers of the Bible books. See, Paul, <laughs> it's going to surprise you, Paul's not an American. <laughs> and he's not a European. And he doesn't think like one or talk like one. Big shock. I got news for you, that's a big shock to most of the church. Maybe even heresy. See, the Old Testament can be very challenging to interpret. But let me tell you, it gets murkier in some ways when we're dealing with the Greek New Testament. Why? Because by this point in history, Jewish tradition, halakha, had become fully integrated into Jewish society. So many Jewish religious beliefs expressed using certain unique terms and expressions were nearly universally accepted within Jewish culture and just taken for granted. And as what happens in many languages, abbreviations, idioms, expressions are eventually developed as a kind of a shorthand to express the essence of these various beliefs. For instance, 
A popular Christian religious expression is, once saved, always saved. It is shorthand for a rather long and complex assertion about the nature and workings of redemption. But it only has meaning to a Christian who holds to a similar belief system and who lives in the same culture. Outside of that, those words are either misunderstood or they hold no discernible meaning at all. Now Paul brings us a unique set of translation and interpretation difficulties. As a highly educated Pharisee and rabbi, he not only thought and explained religious matters in terms that were standard to his Jewish culture, but he also thought and explained things in terms of how he was taught at the Academy of Gamaliel, which he was a star pupil. See, there's a unique structure and protocol that rabbis use to state or debate religious principles and, and regulations of Judaism that we can identify within Paul's statements provided we know what to look for. Now, I've already pointed out some of these. I've showed you that what Paul seems to be saying according to our 21st century way of using the English language within a Western culture and especially within the 21st century church which holds certain doctrinal viewpoints that aren't quite as universal as we might assume sometimes these don't always jibe with what he meant in his first century Jewish culture that had Judaism at its center. Rather, Paul is using words and expressions that they were everyday. They were common. They were well understood in a Jewish society, but they can mean something else entirely to our ears. Our job, difficult as it may be, is to discover what he meant to communicate to his contemporaries, not what it sounds like it means to us 2,000 years later in an entirely different cultural setting. For example, I speak regularly to you about the good inclination and the evil inclination. Now these are not standard Western church terms. But they are standard Jewish terms from the Old and the New Testament era. And the concept of humans being born with good and evil inclinations is perfectly valid, biblically speaking, even if Christianity uses different terms to express a, a very similar theological concept. Paul, of course, uses the Jewish concepts behind those very Jewish terms and idioms to express himself in his letters that form so much of our New Testament. I mean, think about it. What else would he use? But if we don't recognize that fact, if we can't explore what it meant from his Jewish point of view of the first century AD, it's all but guaranteed. We're going to derive some very strange doctrines from those words. Or we were going to find Paul 
making conflicting statements or seeming to disagree with either the Torah or at times even with Christ. Now I tell you this because especially passages in Romans chapter 6 and 7 get misunderstood because many Bible commentators, nearly all pastors and Bible teachers, do not recognize the Jewish cultural expressions that Paul is using for what they are. Now let me give you some examples of this issue using rather standard foreign expressions from our era which when directly translated to English certainly have a meaning but the sum of the words do not actually mean what it sounds to our ears like it means. In German there is an expression that literally says you have tomatoes on your eyes. Now we can certainly understand those words, can't we? And we can go rush to a mirror and see if we really do have tomatoes resting on our eyes. But in German idiom, this has nothing to do with tomatoes. It means you're just not seeing what everybody else obviously does. Another example comes from Sweden. The expression is, there's no cow on the ice. There's no cow on the ice. And of course, while those words certainly have meaning to us in English, in reality, this idiom has nothing to do with cows or ice. It means there's nothing to worry about. Now, as an aside, I sure thank the Lord that those two idioms aren't Hebrew expressions found in the New Testament. I mean, otherwise, tomatoes, cows, ice would undoubtedly hold prominent places in our Christian doctrines and in and, and our, and our church services. Maybe that's where holy cow came from. I don't know. Well, let's continue with our study of the book of Romans and I'm going to continue to point out when we're dealing with apparent Jewish cultural expressions and what they seem to have meant at that time what those words meant then is what they need to mean to us now or we have missed the point so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 Romans chapter 6, page 1408, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 12. Romans chapter 6, we'll, be, we'll take up at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin rule in your mortal bodies so that it makes you obey its desires. And do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument for wickedness. On the contrary, offer yourselves to God as people alive from the dead and your various parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have authority over you because you're not under legalism but under grace. Therefore, what conclusion should we reach? 
let's go on sinning because we're not under legalism but under grace? Heaven forbid! Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, then of the one whom you are obeying, you are slaves, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to being made righteous. By God's grace, you who were once slaves to sin obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed. And after you had been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Now I'm using popular language because your human nature is so weak. For just as I used to offer your various parts as slaves, uh, as you used to offer your various parts as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness, so now offer your various parts as slaves to righteousness, which leads to being made holy, set apart for God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relationship to righteousness. But what benefit did you derive from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end result of those things was death. However, now freed from sin, enslaved to God, you do get the benefit. And it consists in being made holy, set apart for God, and its end result is eternal life. For what one earns from sin is death. But eternal life is what one receives as a free gift from God in union with the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. I want to review something important with you. In Romans, we have heard Paul speak about three distinct kinds of divine law. Now, I pause to do this because precious few Bible commentators acknowledge that there are three and insist there is but one use and meaning for the word law. There is the kind of divine law like Paul says that Adam received. This was a direct commandment one-on-one -on -one from the Lord that's really only meant for that person. Then there's another kind of divine law that all human beings are born with. We innately know these laws and all humans are required to obey them. This is typically called the natural law. Finally, there's the third kind of divine law that was given to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, the law of Moses. Now Paul has gone to great lengths to explain that no matter which of these three kinds of divine law a person might violate, it is sin. And therefore that person becomes a sinner. And since the law of Moses didn't even come to mankind until after the Israelites had been down to Egypt and left, then only two kinds of divine law had existed up until then. A direct command one-on-one -on -one from God and the natural law. Thus all human beings, regardless of race, nationality, or ethnicity at all times in history, have been subject to one kind of divine law or the other. And so all human beings could and did sin. What's the consequence of sin? God's wrath. Ultimately, eternal death. You see, that 
and what to do about it, that has been the focus of the book of Romans. But it is equally important that we understand that apart from divine law, Paul also weaves in another kind of law into his dissertation, into this letter, that goes unnoticed to the untrained eye. He weaves in Jewish law, halakha, tradition, man-made law as opposed to divine law. We have to watch for this. So as Bible believers, our challenge is that when Paul speaks of law, which of the three kinds of divine law and one kind of man-made law is he speaking of? The major difficulty in identifying which is which is because in all cases, Paul uses only one Greek word for all four kinds of law, nomos. And when we translate nomos to English, it means law. So a Bible student really has their work cut out for them when reading Paul's letters, especially so the book of Romans. Now although we discussed verse 14 last time, we're going to briefly follow up on it since it is a perfect example of Jewish idiom that meant one thing to Jews then, but communicates something different to most Christians today. It says this, For sin will not have authority over you, because you are under not under law, but you're under grace. Now I quoted the eminent Bible commentator C.E.B. Cranfield, who points out that even though it might sound so to our English-speaking ears, this does not imply that the law of Moses is dead to Christians. Rather, we must instead understand what under law and under grace meant. But before that, what is meant by sin will not have authority over you? We have learned that those living under the dominion of sin are therefore living under the authority of death since sin and death are fused together as one. And who are those living under the dominion of sin? All who come from Adam. Us. Everybody. Thus what is being contrasted by Paul are the consequences of what happens to a sinner according to the law of Moses versus what happens to a sinner who by God's grace has been righteous, has been justified. The consequences of sinning, which is God's wrath upon us, has been the topic since midway through Romans chapter 1. And Paul has been preaching that by means of a sinner trusting in the faithful works of Messiah Yeshua, that sinner can be protected from God's wrath, which is due to him. Thus the consequences of sinning under law is God's wrath, which is death, 
But the consequences for committing those same sins under the gracious act of God righteousing the sinner, we call that grace, is the avoidance of God's wrath. So then in verse 15, we again encounter Jewish idiom. And in this case, it is Jewish idiom used especially by rabbis. In the standard rabbinic way, that a matter of scripture interpretation and a resultant ruling about it is created, Paul puts words in his straw man's mouth. And the words are in response to Paul seemingly implying that if we're free from law, then we must also be free from sinning. So the straw man says, well then, let's just go on sinning because we're not under law, we're under grace. And in standard rabbinic expression, that is a strong disagreement with a proposed theological ruling, Paul responds, heaven forbid. And then starting in verse 16, he goes on to explain why the straw man's idea that it's that under grace it's okay to continue sinning is simply not correct. Now to make his case, Paul again resorts to using the fundamental doctrine of Judaism called the two masters. The doctrine of the two masters. Now please take note. While the concept of a person not serving two masters can be found existing in the broadest sense in the Torah, such as the commandment in Exodus to serve no other gods but the God of Israel, it is not explicitly stated in the Bible until we read it in the New Testament. In Luke 16.13, no servant can be a slave to two masters. For he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You cannot be a slave to both God and money. So, why don't we hear this doctrine of the two masters before the New Testament? Was it an innovation of Christ who essentially created and spoke the doctrine of the two masters as a new kind of Christian doctrine? No. This was a long-established doctrine of Judaism. Yeshua was merely using something familiar. Now remember, Judaism was the result of the Babylonian exile. So Paul knew of this Jewish doctrine of the two masters since his childhood. Therefore, he uses the doctrine of two masters to make his point. Because the Jewish believers in Rome would have instantly picked up on it and accepted its validity. And Paul says that if you obey your inner instinct to sin, well, that makes you a slave to it. And since the Jews connected sinning to our evil inclination, then they saw the evil inclination as one master, and the good inclination as a second master. And Paul reminds his readers, you can't sleep, be slaves to both. Once we are slaves to the master of sin, but now we are slaves to the master of righteousness, God. He 
does something kind of interesting in verse 19. He sort of apologizes for using the choice of words that he did. Why? Because in the diaspora, and especially so in the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome, being a slave was a low and degrading thing. So using the metaphor of slavery to express a believer's devotion to obeying God was to use something disgusting, absolutely inappropriate in Roman culture. So while Paul understood that sensitivity, he used it, as he often does, for impact, to gain the attention of his readers. But the point Paul is making here is that after being released from slavery to the master to sin, it doesn't mean that a believer has no obligations to his new master, the master of righteousness, God. And I'm afraid that it's often mistakenly thought among many evangelical Christians that the type of freedom and liberty that they gain in salvation is the freedom and liberty from obedience to God or from any obligation to Him whatsoever. Paul makes it clear our newfound freedom is only freedom from our obligation to sin because we had allowed our evil inclinations to be our master. But I also want to point out in verse 19 how he speaks about how in the past those to whom he's writing his letter used to use their bodies for impurity and for lawlessness which, says Paul, only led to more lawlessness. What does Paul mean by lawlessness? I mean, is he implying that they were criminals? See, when the Bible speaks of lawlessness, it's speaking of only one thing divine laws. Law breaking in the Bible means to break God's divine laws, not laws made by human governments. In fact, Yeshua was so aware of this reality and this understanding among Jews that he made it a point to teach that worshippers of God were indeed to obey their human governments. However, in other statements, it is also made clear that this only applied to government laws that were in moral agreement with God's laws. Thus, if the human government deified their leader, worshippers of God, of course, were not being instructed to, as good citizens, commit idolatry and worship that government leader. And it was the same concerning all matters of morality. However, when it comes to non-moral matters, like conscription into the military, taxes, contract law, and the like, well then indeed, God's worshippers are to abide by their local governmental laws. Thus a, a very good and appropriate substitute 
For the term lawlessness, as used in the Holy Scripture, that reveals how it was meant in Paul's day, would be Torahlessness. Torahlessness. In fact, Torahlessness carries with it a far more accurate sense of what Paul means than lawlessness, which sounds to our modern ears like the actions of a criminal. Now Paul ends this section of his letter to the Romans, chapter 6, by stating his final conclusion, which is actually in Jewish culture called a halakhic ruling. And after debating his straw man now for several chapters, verse 23 brings this particular flow of thought to a close with a religious instruction that all who worship Yeshua as Lord and Savior are to follow. A ruling that is the very basis of Christianity. It says, for what earns from sin, uh, what one earns from sin is death, but eternal life is what one receives as a free gift from God in union with the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. That is his ruling. Now, let's move on to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. That'll be page 1409 in the complete Jewish Bible. Surely you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who understand Torah, that the Torah has authority over a person only so long as he lives. For example, a married woman is bound by Torah to her husband while he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the part of the Torah that deals with husbands. Therefore, while the husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress if she marries another man. But if the husband dies, she is free from that part of the Torah, so that if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Thus, my brothers, you have been made dead with regard to the Torah through the Messiah's body, so that you may belong to someone else, namely, the one who has been raised from the dead, in order for us to bear fruit for God. For when we were living according to our old nature, the passions connected with sins worked through the Torah in our various parts, with the result that we bore fruit for death. But now we've been released from this aspect of the Torah because we have died to that which has had us in its clutches, so that we are serving in the new way provided by the Spirit, not in the old way of outwardly following the letter of the law. Therefore, what are we to say? That the Torah is sinful? Heaven forbid! Rather, the function of the Torah was that without it, I would not have known what sin is. For example, I would not have become conscious of what greed is if the Torah had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, worked in me all kinds of evil desires. For apart from Torah, sin is dead. I was once alive outside the framework of Torah. But when the commandment really encountered me, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was intended to bring me life was found to be bringing me death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, sin killed me. So the Torah is holy. That is, the commandment is holy, just, and good. Then did something good become for me the source of death? Heaven forbid! 
Rather, it was sin working death in me through something good so that sin might be clearly exposed to sin, so that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit, but as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. But now, it's no longer the real me doing it, but sin housed inside of me. For I know that there is nothing good housed inside of me. That is, my, inside my old nature. I can want what's good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. For I don't... For, for if I am doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me, me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of perverse Torah, that although I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah, one that battles with the Torah in my mind and makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah which is operating in my various parts. Oh, what a miserable creature I am! Who's going to rescue me from this body bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will. Through Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. You know, this chapter, if it had a title should probably be true liberty is freedom from the condemnation of the law. Now I spent quite a bit of time at the beginning of our lesson today explaining that the key to understanding the New Testament and especially Paul is to spot his Jewish idioms and expressions. The opening verses of Romans 7 afford us just such an opportunity. Paul offers this odd opening to chapter 7 saying that, well, his brothers ought to already know most of what he's about to tell them. See, Paul's brothers are the Jewish believers of Rome because he says that he is speaking in regard to those who know and understand Torah. Well, at least that's what the complete Jewish Bible says. Most English versions don't use the word Torah. It'll either say law or the law. So in those versions, Paul is speaking of those who already ought to know law. Now we discussed in an earlier lesson that by adding the definite article the before the word law, we turn it into the law. The law in Jewish thought means the law of Moses. The problem is that in this verse the definite article is not actually there. Bible translators have added the word the in order to make it appear that Paul is speaking of the law of Moses. But the Greek New Testament manuscripts don't have it that way. 
Now I've already explained that the Greek word for law is nomos and that Paul uses the term nomos to refer to several different kinds of law not only the law of Moses. So our challenge then is to identify which kind of law he's speaking about at any given time since Roman, since in Romans the term law is used constantly. And the general consensus of Bible translators is that Paul is indeed speaking about the law of Moses in verses 1 through 3 when he uses the analogy of a woman being married to her husband but then the husband dies so according to the law of Moses she's free to be married to another man and this freedom is because since the husband died he's no longer under law so now the widow is set free virtually every Bible commentary I could find agreed that what Paul was quoting was a commandment from the Torah, the law of Moses about the circumstances under which a widow could remarry. And all these Bible commentators are wrong. They're all wrong. How do I know they're wrong? There is no Torah law that deals with a widow being able to remarry. In fact, it's forbidden. The closest thing there is in the law of Moses to a widow legitimately remarrying after her husband's death is the law of leveret marriage, whereby a man dies but his wife has produced him no sons. The man's brother is required to marry the widow and then produce a male child with her for an heir. The reason and so the deceased husband's bloodlines will continue because the son produced by the widow and the brother are considered as belonging to the deceased husband. Now clearly this is not at all what Paul has in mind and the law of Moses has no other laws in this regard to a widow remarrying. Rather, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is citing a general law of Jewish society that when a Jewish woman is widowed she may remarry and it's not considered adultery. The important issue for us however is where this law comes from. Clearly it does not come from the law of Moses. It does not come from the Torah. Rather it comes from tradition. It comes from Jewish law. Paul is not referring to scripture here. He's referring to Halakha. Because in the Mishnah, we read this. A woman is acquired in marriage in three ways. And she acquires her freedom in two. She acquires her freedom by divorce or by her husband's death. As for divorce, it is well. Since it is written, then he shall write her a bill of divorcement. But whence do we know that she is freed from by her husband's death? It is logic. He, the husband, bound her. Hence he frees her. Thus death is compared to divorce. Just as divorce completely frees her, so does death completely free her. This is Jewish law. This is not the Torah of Moses. The Torah carries the death penalty for a woman who remarries because it is viewed as adultery. 
So a ruling of halakha, a tradition was created within Judaism that says that a widow who remarries is not guilty of adultery. Therefore we know that in Romans 7, 1 through 3, we have an example of when Paul uses the term nomos to mean law in the sense of halakha, in the sense of Jewish law. You, you following me on this? I sure hope so. Sure quiet. And clearly Paul gives much authority to this ruling of the rabbis and he accepts it as legitimate. However, I don't think Paul has a clear, conscious line of demarcation between the law of Moses and Jewish law. Most of the time, he seems to see Jewish law as just but an expanded interpretation of the law of Moses. So it's nearly one and the same to him. This is because that's exactly how Jewish society viewed it. When he speaks of the law of Moses from a historical, technical sense, that's one thing. But when he speaks about law from a Jewish, social, cultural sense, the law of Moses and Jewish law are so closely interrelated that most times he sees them as unified. So when in verse 1 he says that his brothers already understand law, he means they understand Jewish law, halakha, the Jewish law code of Jewish culture. It doesn't mean that they've been formally trained in the law of Moses like the priests were. We must remember that in the Jewish diaspora especially, the only real contact that Jews had with their religious authorities took place in the synagogue where the Pharisees ruled and the Pharisees were the authors and enforcers not of the law of Moses but of Halakha it was Halakha that ruled Judaism in the synagogue not the law of Moses now I hope this is beginning to hit home with you as I realize you have been learning almost an entire new vocabulary and I'm sure it's been quite a challenge quite a challenge but it starts to get even more complex with verse 4 Paul using the illustration and analogy that he built in verses 1 through 3 about the widow remarrying says that believers in Yeshua have been made dead to the Torah dead to the law but here Paul switches and he means the law of Moses and not Jewish law. How do I know that? Because the definite article, the, is present there in the Greek in verse 4. So Paul is saying the law, which indicates the law of Moses. Now remember, he's not trying to apply the rule of Halakha of verses 1 through 3 to verse 4, he's just using it as an illustration of how to think about a believer dying to the law. And in the case of the widow, it was who died? Her husband. 
So using that illustration in the case of verse 4, it's the believer in Yeshua that died to the law of Moses. See, here's the thing. Regardless of what this means, the important point is, who died? The believer or the law? It was the believer who died. The law didn't die. However, because Christians have had it drilled into our heads for 19 centuries that the law has died, we unconsciously read that into this passage. But it says the believer died. Nothing about the law dying. Look at it carefully. Look at it. Who or what died? Man, this is important. Did the person die or did the law die? Is there any implication that the law died? No. None. So what can it mean then for a believer to die to the law? Well, what in the world is Paul getting at here? I mean... We can take his assertion to mean basically one of two things. First, believers no longer have any obligation to follow the law of Moses, and therefore uh, for us, any violation of the law of Moses is simply not sin for us. Or, two, believers no longer are affected by some particular aspect of the law of Moses. The institutional church says option one is correct. We have no obligation to follow God's laws as found in the law of Moses. And if we do something that the law of Moses prohibits, it is not sin for believers. Problem is, not only does Christ in Matthew 5 say the opposite, so does the Apostle John. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah. Indeed, sin is violation of the Torah. Now, option two is obviously the correct one. In fact, it's the fairly obvious choice. There's, there is some aspect of the Torah law that believers are no longer under and Paul has been speaking of that aspect all throughout Romans. See, the focus of his letter, think about this again. What's been the focus of his letter? The focus of his letter has been God's wrath for sinners and how do we avoid it? You want to avoid it? I want to avoid it. The issue has been the condemnation, the death penalty that comes from our sinning. That's been the whole issue. And Paul has said that the Torah, the law of Moses, details God's law so that what is sin and what is not, it becomes crystal clear to us. But it also details the penalties for sin. The next chapter of Romans, yeah, this gets really interesting, is Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 begins with these words. Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with Messiah Yeshua. 
There it is. Paul has just summed up things that at the end of chapter that come at the end of chapter six with for what one earns from sin is death. But eternal life is what one receives as a free gift from God in union with the Messiah Yeshua our Lord. He sums up then chapter seven of Romans with the first verse of chapter eight. Therefore, there's no longer condemnation awaiting those who are in union with the Messiah Yeshua. See, the aspect of the Torah that believers are dead to is the condemnation that comes from disobeying its many laws. We're not dead to the Torah itself. Salvation has not freed us from obedience to the law. Rather, salvation has freed us from the death penalty that the law requires for our disobedience to the law. Where have we heard this before? Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Familiar to this body. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So who, uh, whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So according to Christ and according to Paul, the law of Moses remains in effect for believers, but... Through God's grace, we are saved from the condemnation of what happens when we break any of those laws, when we sin. So since that's the case, then what happens to believers who refuse to obey the law of Moses? Christ says that whether we obey or don't, we're still members of the kingdom of heaven. That is, we remain saved, although other passages Paul makes clear that that's true only to a point. However, the kingdom of heaven is a real kingdom. It's going to have a real king, Yeshua. It's going to have real rules and laws. And it will have real citizens whose status will be arranged in a real hierarchy. Church often refers to this heavenly hierarchy is jewels placed in our crowns. Yeshua says that those believers who strive to obey the law of Moses will be given the greatest status in the kingdom of heaven. Those believers who say they see no need to obey the law of Moses will be given the least status in the kingdom of heaven. So if your goal is to make it into the God's kingdom by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> Not a very wise goal in my opinion. Then simply determine that the law is not for you. But if your goal is to please God on this earth and to obey his law to the fullest extent of your ability and your circumstances, which I think is a very good goal, then a far greater experience and status in the kingdom of God awaits you. Now, I have utterly no idea 
of the tangible differences between these two statuses. Which I did. But I did once hear a person describe it this way. If when you go to heaven and you get into the line where they're handing out transportation, which would you rather have, a Mercedes or a skateboard? I think we'll continue Romans chapter 7 next time.